0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, fourth Sunday of Advent, last Sunday of Advent. Advent Advent means arrival. So this is the four weeks when we prepare for the arrival of Jesus. We do that by looking back at his first arrival, celebrating, thankful for what he for that he came. 2,000 years ago as a baby, and we look forward to his second arrival at some time in the future. We don't know when, but we know it's certain that he's going to come, and he will return as the king on a white horse. And so we're, we're living in between both of those arrivals. We're using what's called the lectionary during Advent. There are these assigned uh, scripture passages. We're looking just at the passage in Isaiah and the way that we're using that is messianically, so that those passages in Isaiah say something to Isaiah's original audience, but the church has also seen in those passages a deeper or a fuller meaning uh, that, that speaks to Jesus, who he is as the Messiah and what he would do as the Messiah. And so that's the way that we're approaching those passages. How do they help us prepare for Jesus' arrival? I do need to give you just a little bit of background. Try not to let your eyes glaze over, just for today, because we'll, you, we'll miss it. We, we can miss, it's a very familiar passage that you heard Jordan and Kenzie read, but we can miss it if we don't know some of the significance, and most of us honestly we don't. So Isaiah 7 was what's called a personal prophecy. So Isaiah is a prophet sent by God to the people of Judah, and most of his messages are to the people. Isaiah 7 is just to the king. And his name is Ahaz, and he's wicked. The Bible says he did not follow the ways of the Lord. And in the Bible, that's one of the worst things you can say about a king. They do their own thing. So Ahaz is not a good king. He's a wicked king. And he's in a tough situation. You can see the map there behind me. So Judah is the little bitty country at the bottom. And then there are three bigger countries um, to the north of it. So Ephraim is what it's called, or the northern kingdom, or Israel. Those are fellow Jews, the ten tribes. They, and then Syria, they formed an alliance. And they want to fight against the Assyrians. That's confusing. The Assyrians are a, the dominant power of the day, bloodthirsty, cruel, and they're just kind of mowing everybody down. And so Syria and Ephraim, or, or Israel, they make an alliance and say, we want to fight Assyria. And so then they pressure Judah to say, you, you join this alliance with us. And Ahaz does not want to do that. And so he's being pressed. And there's actually a war. It's called the Syro-Ephraimite War where Syria and the northern kingdom, Israel, they're fighting Judah. And they've already done some work. They've already had at least one battle. Judah lost big time. 120,000 soldiers were killed. 200,000 people were taken captive. And so that's Ahaz's situation. He's scared. God sends Isaiah to him, this is the beginning of chapter 7, you can read it, and says, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of Syria, and I'm going to take care of Ephraim. Those are his people, the Jews. I'm going to take care of both of those countries. You don't need to worry about it. And then Isaiah 7.10 kicks in. So this idea, I'm just going to reread what... Jordan and Kinsey read, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, that's the king. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So what he's saying is, I just told you that I'm going to take care of it. Now ask me for a sign to confirm that. So remember, Ahaz is wicked. So you think about, the, we'll call it the humility of God, that he's willing to, to, to show a sign to a wicked king. This is how much he wants Ahaz to get it. You've been rejecting me. But I'm telling you, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm not even asking you to just trust me. Ask me for a sign to prove it, to prove that you can trust me. It's a genuine offer from God. Again, I'm just going to say the humility of God to be willing to offer a sign to someone who has been rejecting him. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, and we hear that we may think, "Hey, Jesus quoted that same verse from Deuteronomy when the devil tempted him." So maybe Ahaz is, maybe he's kind of turning a little bit. Maybe that, that's a response of faith. It's not. You can see that by what Isaiah says here now, you house of David. So that's that's Ahaz's house. He's he's from he's a descendant of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God? also. So now he's not your God. He's just my God because you've rejected him. God offered to give Ahaz a sign. It's not testing him. God made the invitation. What Ahaz is doing is saying, no, I'm not interested in God confirming his word to me. So God decides, here's the sign that I'm going to give you. You didn't ask. And here's what I'm going to do. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the the land of the two kings, so that's Aram, or excuse me, Syria, that's another name for its Aram, and Ephraim, the the land of both of those kings that you dread, will be laid waste. So the reason Ahaz doesn't want a sign is because he's already made another deal. Rather than trusting God, he's chosen to trust the Assyrians. You'll see the verse on the screen behind me from 2 Kings. 2 Kings provides the background for Isaiah 7 through 12. So you can read those two things together to kind of get the prophetic side of what's going on in Isaiah. What is God saying to the people and the historical side, what's going on in the nation as a whole. It's a bit more of a zoom out perspective. And what's going on is is Ahaz has decided to uh, circumvent God protection and provision and go around to Assyria and say, these two guys are attacking me and I'm going to pay you to protect me. So rather than trusting God, he's putting his trust in a pagan, bloodthirsty, cruel nation. I read a guy and he said, what Ahaz did is he went to a cat and said, as a mouse, will you help me with these other two mice? And that's kind of the way it plays out for him. And so what God says is, I'm going to give you a sign. You didn't ask, and I'm going to give you one. And this sign is going to have two different, um, it's going to signify two different things. The sign itself, your Bible may say a young woman, that that the word doesn't necessarily mean virgin. It can mean virgin, but it doesn't have to. And for Isaiah's audience, it probably didn't. It probably just meant a young woman who had... Hit puberty and therefore could have children and probably was already married. Someone who was already married. Women got married 12, 13, 14 years old at that this time. So we would say a young girl, you know, and she's gonna have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then this son, again, he he is the sign, and he's gonna signify two different things. One is deliverance. So in the short term, it's gonna be it's gonna be good for Ahaz and Judah before this son is old enough to know right from wrong, so that's called the age of accountability or the age of responsibility. Sometime between twelve and twenty, so we'll just say a teenager. So before this boy is a teenager, Syria and Ephraim are going to be destroyed, and that happens. Ephraim's destroyed in three years, and Syria, oh, excuse me, Syria is destroyed in three years, and Ephraim in thirteen. And this sign is also going to be, this, son, this boy, he's also going to be a sign not just of deliverance but also of punishment. It's a little confusing. What is this thing about eating curds and honey? So once this boy is a teenager and older, he's going to be eating curds and honey. So that's a, that's a picture of, the, of exile. Judah is an agrarian economy. So if this boy is not eating bread and olive oil, that's what you eat. Those are the staple diet. So he's eating stuff that animals produce and stuff that bees produce naturally. Because there's, they, not, there's not enough people to farm anymore. And if you go back and you read verses 22 through 25, you can see that. I'm not going to read that. It's on the screen behind me. Where God is saying, this boy, before he's a teenager... I'm going to take care of this immediate threat, these other two nations. When he gets older, so in the future, the more distant future, I'm going to punish you for being faithless, for putting your trust in the Assyrians and not in me. I'm going to depopulate this land. There's going to be a chunk of you guys that are going to be led into exile. You're not going to be able to farm anymore. There's not going to be enough of you. You're not going to be able to take care of the land anymore. It's going to turn into briars and thorns. You're not going to be able to grow crops. You're just going to have to eat what the, what's produced naturally and what the animals produce. So that's what's going on. How does that tie into Jesus? This is the most direct prophecy that we've seen of the four that we've looked at in Isaiah. In Matthew 1, he quotes Isaiah seven fourteen to say, Here, here's the context for what's going on. He says all of this, and what he's referring to is the conce- Mary's conception and Naming this baby Jesus and Joseph, that's who the angel's talking to in Matthew. He's talking to Joseph who's going to divorce Mary and the angel says, don't do it. Everything that's happening, God is at work. It's it's his baby. Mary didn't cheat on you. And you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to forgive people of their sins. All of this happened to fulfill that verse. Isaiah seven fourteen. All of this happened. To, it's a fulfillment of the virgin will conceive. And Matthew uses that word specifically, virgin, not young woman. He's changed the word. This virgin will conceive and she'll give birth to a son. And y'all are going to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is not just the Messiah. He's also the Son of God. We talked about that last week. John 1.14, If you want to define Christmas in one verse... The word, that is the, the pre-incarnate. We talked about that last week. The son of God before he became a man. He took on flesh. He became a human and he lived among us. That is Christmas. God becomes a man. We spent nine months going through Mark. And Mark wants us to know, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's the son of God. We're not going to go back through all that today. Just know that the claim of the New Testament is not just that Jesus is a great moral teacher or not just that he was a miracle-working healer, not even that he was uh, the Messiah, one sent by God to make things right. The claim of the New Testament is that he is God in the flesh. That's a whole different level from what anybody was expecting. God arriving on the scene and arriving on the scene as a baby. That's what Bo was just talking about from... Hebrews, he was a baby and he, he, he grew up just like we grow up. He knows all of the frailties and weaknesses and temptations that come with being a human. But he didn't sin. God in the flesh, God arriving on the scene to make things right. He didn't sin somebody. He came himself. And when he came... He does come, Matthew 10, 34, I think it is. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And that kind of catches us off. Well, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. That's one of our big Christmas verses from Isaiah 9. And he is the Prince of Peace in that he, he makes peace between humanity and God. But he also comes to bring a sword. There, there's, you can't sit on a, there's no aisle, you can't sit on a fence You're for him or you're against him. And that's what he's talking about in Matthew 10. It's that same dynamic that we see play out in Isaiah where this one boy is a sign of two different things. He's a sign of deliverance and he's a sign of punishment. When Jesus comes as the king, he comes and and he he, he brings a, a sword. You have to make a decision. You accept him or you reject him. He's the same person. And he's bringing the same message. The king is here and you can live under his rule and his reign. And if you accept that, then his coming is the best news you've ever heard. And if you reject that, it's the worst news you've ever heard. If you accept him and his coming, then that is forgiveness and healing and restoration and salvation for you. And if you reject him and that message, then it's punishment and judgment and we could even use the word curse. Think about just pick, a, pick, pick two people in the gospels. The different ways people respond to Jesus. He's the same. He's, he's bringing the same message. Think about Zacchaeus. You remember him, the little short guy and he climbs up in a tree. Jesus comes to his town in Jericho and he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree. He's a tax collector. Nobody likes tax collectors. And when Jesus sees him, he says, I'm coming to your house today. And when when, when they're eating, Zacchaeus says, I'm, going to give, I'm giving away half of what I've gotten. And if i cheated anybody, I'll give back four times what I stole from them. Think about that response to Jesus versus the response of the rich young ruler. Another man who's loaded. This guy's very well respected, though. And he meets Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow these commandments. And he says, I've done that. And he says, one thing you lack, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. And the guy walks away sad. It's the same message. It's the same king. Two very different responses based on the heart of the people. Zacchaeus, there was a humility in him, a, a recognition. I've sinned. I've sinned. And I need a savior. And it's him. He's the king. He's worth everything I've got. The rich young ruler, maybe not quite as convinced that he sinned. I've kept all these commands since I was a boy. That's what he says. Probably, probably has. He doesn't recognize his need. And when Jesus presses him on the thing that he loves most, his money, he walks away sad. Same king, same message. John 3 uh, commentary. John says, he's talking about Jesus and says, The Father didn't send the Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But those who reject Jesus, they're already condemned. You understand that dynamic. Same man, same message, two very different responses. That's the sword that he came to bring. You gotta make a decision. And that's still the case. Second Corinthians 2, Paul is talking about us as followers of Jesus. And he says, we, we are the aroma of Christ. And when some people smell us, it smells great to them. And when some people smell us, it stinks. And the difference is not, it's not us, it's their heart posture. Towards Jesus, the picture is a Roman general who's just won a battle and he's coming back to his city and has his own army plus a group of POWs that he's captured. They're coming back into the city, there's a big party, they're burning incense. And when the victorious soldiers come into the city and they smell that incense, they know we won. It's, it's, It's encouraging to them. It's 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 celebratory. And when the POWs smell that incense, they know we're done. We're either getting sold into slavery or we're getting executed. It's the same smell that means two very different things, depending on whether you're on the winning side or the losing side. And Paul says, that's us. That that continues. Jesus continues to bring a sword. We, We, as the aroma of Jesus in the different places that we move, and you can see this in your own experience. How people respond to Jesus in you. When Jesus returns in Revelation, some people are going to respond with worship and gratitude and joy. And other people are going to respond with fear and hatred and anger. It's the same event, Jesus' return. The different response is based on our posture towards him. Are we aligned with him or not? You understand all of that. I know those of you that I know, and I know many of you, you've already made a decision. You've aligned yourself with him. You're following him as the king. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So when you think about preparing for Christmas, that, that's one of the, the pieces for us. Am I aligned with Jesus? Again, this is, we're, we're celebrating his first coming, looking forward to his second coming, and we want to be aligned with him so that when he returns, it's good news for us and not bad news. It's salvation for us and not condemnation. And All that takes is the humility in your own heart to say, Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's it. I agree with you. I'm not going to go my own way anymore. I want to follow you. There's another way that Jesus comes to us, and this I think may be a bit more of a challenge for those of us who are following him. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. Think about that idea of truth with a capital T. And he still comes to us as the truth. And maybe one of the challenges for us, it's a challenge for me, can I, can I receive the truth as it comes to me in the different circumstances and situations of my life? The three primary ways that truth comes to me are directly through the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, and then through, we'll say the church, but I don't necessarily mean every one of us, although that can be true. We talk about the church as those people who love God and love us. In a little bit of a smaller group, the, the body Again, it's all of us, but when we're thinking about who's bringing truth into your life, most likely it's the people who who you're in relationship with. And the truth comes to us through all three of those ways. That's how God speaks to us. But it can be sometimes difficult for us to align ourselves with that truth. So I want you to think about in your own life, do you have a hard time at, at times aligning yourself with the truth that comes? You have on this macro level, you've aligned yourself with the king. But on the kind of a daily level, are you aligning yourself with the king who, who, who is truth? The Holy Spirit speaks to us almost always in a still, small voice. And because it's still and small, he whispers. He doesn't yell. He's easy to ignore. His word to us is almost always directive. God, I don't know. In my life, he's never given me a suggestion. And so it doesn't work that way. He's He's God. So he's either convicting us of sin, or he's prompting us to a particular action. That's how, most of the time, that's, what the, that's how the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He's either convicting us of sin, or he's prompting us into to, to an action. But again, it's a whisper, it's not a shout. And if it's something that we don't want to hear, or if it's something we don't want to do, it's super easy to ignore him. I don't know if that's you or not. And so a prayer for us is... Help me to keep in step. Help me to keep in step with your spirit. I want to pay attention. He speaks to us through the word. The word is a, it's a plumb line. And everything else is measured and trued up and judged and evaluated based on the word. But the Bible can seem super outdated, super irrelevant, inaccessible. Some of it's confusing. We just went through this whole war. You didn't even know there was a war then. You're like, do I have to know all that stuff to understand it? It can be inaccessible. That There is some effort that's required. Not tons and tons and tons, but yeah, you've got to put a little bit in. And for some of us, we, we, we don't do that. It, it feels, too again, too hard. It's easy to manipulate the words in this book. Super easy to do that. You can find an expert who will endorse just about any perspective you have on any passage in the Bible. It's not hard. You can Google it. You can find whatever you want. You can have your justification. It's difficult for us at times to submit to the Bible, again, because it does feel outdated. There are parts of it that if we're honest, we're like, that's kind of embarrassing. But are we going to submit to it or are we going to stand in judgment over it? God help me to submit to the truth of the Word. Interpretation, like it, it's available to all of us. I think it's First John says the Holy Spirit. Like we don't. He in First John he says you don't even need teachers at times. Like the the Holy Spirit can guide each one of us into the truth of the Bible. If we're reading it and again kind of putting in it just a just a bit of effort to try to understand it, the truth comes to us through the Bible and it judges all things. The truth comes to us through other people. We talk all the time about God speaking to the body through the body. This is, prob- this is the hardest one for me. I don't know if it's the hardest one for you because oftentimes the, the way the truth comes through the, through the person, they're either not necessarily my favorite people and they don't necessarily say things in the nicest way. And so it's easy to dismiss that. The more somebody talks the higher the percentage of their flesh is revealed. You know that. Somebody has something true to say, and they have five true words, and they say 505. And so there's a tendency, if you don't want to hear it, to focus on the things that are not true and to dismiss the things that are. There was a guy that I used to work with, and his his boss was very difficult, very hard to work for. And I was how do you, like, how are you doing this? And he said, I, I, I listen for the 10% that's true. And for most of us, if we hear 2% that's not, we're like, eh, none of it. We throw the whole thing out. At least I do. Maybe not you. So that, that's a, there's a piece there for me to say, okay. Do I have ears to hear what God is saying to me from somebody who maybe doesn't say something in the kindest way? I'm not referring to any of you, of course. Who doesn't say anything in the kindest way? Or who catches me at a bad time? Somebody I'm maybe not particularly close to. Can I still hear the truth from them? If they tell me ten sentences and one of them is actually gold, can I grab onto that or do I focus on the other nine? and argue, and get defensive, and justify my own mind. I don't know where you stand on that, but I want to, that growing, I want to align myself with the truth. I've aligned myself with the king, and the king is the truth. Am I aligning myself with him in every area of my life, in the daily decisions that I make, in the way that I treat the people who are close to me and who are not close to me? The way I spend my time and the way I spend my money and what I call good and what I call evil. Am I aligning myself with the truth? That truth comes to me directly through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to my heart and to my mind. Or am I ignoring him because he whispers? He doesn't shout. Am I aligning myself with what God has revealed in the Word? Or am I saying, I don't know about that's that's old. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were dumb. They haven't, had, they haven't had to live the life that we've had to live. And do I manipulate this to suit my own needs instead of submitting my life to it? Can I hear what God is saying to me through the body, particularly if it's something that I wouldn't necessarily want to hear? Can I say the wounds of a friend can be trusted? I don't know. Where are you on that? We're going to close this morning by taking communion. The way we do that, you'll come forward a row at a time. You'll break up a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion and the, the packaged communion as well. And we've been saying we want to remind ourselves that communion is not just, a, it's not just a ritual act. It's an opportunity to receive the grace of God into our heart. And there's a mystery there. But if we approach the communion from a posture of faith and of trust, saying, God, I, I believe that there's more here than bread and juice. And I want to open myself up to your grace and allow this physical act to represent me taking you in, in my heart, then then God can do some pretty significant things. I'm going to give you some opportunities to respond. We'll have ministry teams up here. We'll pray for you. You may want to kneel at the altar and pray by yourself. Some of you, I don't want you to hear me saying you're Ahaz. That's not fair. But you're in a spot like that. You're in a really tough spot. Like, put yourself in his position. He's a king. Were fight, had aligned themselves and were pressing on him they'd already defeated him once and they were saying explicitly we're coming for you because we want to remove you and put another king in place they were not hiding their intentions he reacted poorly he had no foundation with the Lord and so when he needed to trust there was, no, there was nothing there for him to lean on so he goes around and he makes an alliance with Assyria. And if you read the rest of First Kings, or excuse me, of Second Kings sixteen, it, it goes horribly. Assyria defeats the Syrians. Assyria defeats the Israelites. So Ahab kind of is like, Whew, I, that's done. But then he goes and he meets with the king of Assyria, and he's enamored by their god. He sets up basically the altar to the Assyrian gods in the temple. Horrible consequences. And for some of us, that we're, we're in a situation like that. We're looking, we're this little, we're this, and we're seeing these huge obstacles in our life. And maybe there's this, this voice that's saying, just trust God. And we're going, I, 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 I don't know that I can. And in our flesh, in our desire to make things right, in our desire to settle things, in our desire to avoid Emotional discomfort or whatever it is. We're making an alliance with someone else. With something else. I'm not saying you're worshiping a false God. But we're not putting our trust fully in him. And that's where some of you are. And that's a temptation. And we want to pray for you. That you would be able to trust. And even that God in his mercy would give you some kind of a sign that would help you. Not, not, not because you're we'll stop That he would do that and mercy that he would give you a sign that would help encourage you in your faith. I think it's okay to pray for that. And we want to ask God to do that for you or whoever that might be. And for all of us, I want to say, are you aligned with the king? Is Christmas good news for you? It's good news if you acknowledge there's a king and his rule and his reign is being established and he's inviting me into his kingdom. It's not if you reject that. And so if if you're not settled this morning on Jesus as your king, I would encourage you to take this week. Think, what does it mean for you if Jesus truly is God in the flesh? How does that impact you? What is your response? What should your response? What is your response? And then again, for all of us, is there a place in your life where you're not aligning with the truth? Maybe God is trying to speak to you through the word, through the spirit, through other people. And you're resisting that because it's not necessarily what you want to hear. Would you submit to him this morning? So here's how I want us to get into communion. We're going to pray this prayer together. You can stay seated. So this prayer is from Psalm 139. So we're going to pray the top thing out loud together. And then we're going to listen for, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds. And then we'll pray those second two sentences out loud together. Is that good? All right, so y'all pray that first paragraph with me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Holy Spirit, show me where I'm resisting the truth. So, if something comes to mind and you're willing to repent, you can just confess that in your own heart. You don't say anything out loud. God, I acknowledge that I'm resisting you, the truth in this area. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Give me grace to align myself with the truth. So, we can pray these second couple of sentences Holy Spirit, lead me in the way everlasting. Guide me more deeply into the truth in every area of my life. Bo, you can come back. If you're helping with communion or ministry, you guys can come take your spot, and I'll pray for us as we go into communion. We're thankful, Father, for the sending of your Son. We're thankful for all that this week means. I pray that for everyone in this room, kids, students, and adults who are in this building, Be a week of great joy. There's so many people who'll be rushing around trying to finish up all the last minute stuff. I pray we don't miss the reality God in the flesh, God who didn't send somebody, who came himself. I pray for every one of us and every one of the people that we love that we would align ourselves with the King that Christmas for us would be the best news because we acknowledge the King has come and we're following him. The King has come and we've bowed down before him, yielded our lives to him. And I pray in all ways and in all areas that we would continue to align ourselves with the truth. God, I pray particularly for those who right now in their most honest moment say, "I'm, I'm in the thick of it. There's a huge temptation for me to trust in something other than Jesus. God, would you strengthen them in these moments as they take communion. I pray that their hearts would be fortified to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.